Robert Dick is a revolutionary flutist, composer, teacher, and author. His musical style is a mix of classical, contemporary, electronic, and jazz. And he is the inventor of the glissando head joint, a custom flute head joint that brings the instrument closer to the sound of a human voice. He has received the National Flute Association's Lifetime Achievement Award and authored several books. Robert Dick intends to keep learning, growing, and improving for all his life, and does not feel that there will be a moment to say, I've arrived, it's time to rest. Robert Dick, welcome to The Creative Process. Well, thank you so much. So we're about to hear uh, one of your pieces of music, but before we go into that, I would just like to, you know, how, just tell us about your beginnings as a musician, as a composer. When did you first fall in love with music? Well, I started out in music, not as a composer, but as a classical flute player. That was my, my original goal, and I worked very hard at it as a teenager. And uh, when I was 19, I was playing in the best student orchestra in the United States at Tanglewood. And I realized that orchestra playing was not going to be my life, that it, my own creativity was waking up and a life of playing the same things over and over again was just not going to make me happy. And so I left Tanglewood with, you know, all these big question marks. It's like, well, I'm 19. I've been working at this since I was nine. What am I going to do? So then I thought, well, I actually like playing concerts. I should be a recitalist. And then, well, that's a great idea. What are you going to play on the recitals? So thinking it through, I realized that the classical flute repertoire just didn't offer enough depth and variety to make for a satisfying life. I mean, the, the kind of repertoire that, say, violinists have is, is both a blessing and a curse. They have all this wonderful stuff, but it's also an albatross around their neck. They have to spend their lives polishing their statues. So th really thinking about the music that spoke to me, I realized that actually I was kind of intrigued by contemporary music. And so I thought, okay, I'll get people to write music for me and I'll play the best of contemporary music and that will be my thing. Well, that led me to go to music school, not as a flute player, but as a composer. And I thought initially, I want to understand this music much more from the inside. So understanding the compositional process would make a lot of sense. Well, of course, creativity is the life force itself. And so I found myself, well, yes, it was very useful to understand this music that other people were writing for me, but my music was getting born. And not only on paper, but also improvisationally. In fact, if we can make a little ellipsis to a mere half century later, most of what I'm doing today is improvising music. I'm not putting notes on paper nearly as much as, as I am just creating the music spontaneously. But it was then, as I had begun to meet composers and all in college and realized that, you know, they were enthusiastic about new ideas about the instrument. And I decided that I wanted to explore the flute. I mean, really explore the flute. And people had known a few multiphonics, you know, where you could play two notes at once, things like this. But they had been basically like, quote unquote, special effects, you know, sort of sprinkled into a traditional line to spice it up a touch. And I thought, why not just go the whole way. So my concept that, you know, first of all, music is made by people. I mean, all art is made by people. Music is not made by instruments. The sound of the flute is silence. <laughs> the sound of the piano is silence. The mark of a brush is a white canvas. 
until the person makes the mark. So mu music comes from people that, you know, we use instruments. So I realized that if the person did not accept the traditional limitations, well, then the limitations became meaningless. And the idea was that every acoustic instrument could be played by a person or persons as if it was a human powered synthesizer. And that the only limits to what could be done were the limits in your imagination and then in the limits to what you would do, you know, how far you would go to realize the imagination. And, and of course, one embraces the tradition. Uh, there's no reason to deny yourself all the things that have come before. And, but on the other hand, you can't be enslaved by the tradition either. So I started working on this idea that if the number one to identify the traditional limitations that were assumed about the flute. One was that the flute plays only one note at a time, and those notes would be the notes in the chromatic scale, the scale you'd find on a piano. And, and they would sound something like this. That sort of flutey stuff. And well, we could also on and on and on and on and on and on you know I made this very simple discovery which was it was waiting to be discovered I, I read this quote from Thomas Edison not long ago he said you know I actually never invented anything everything was out there in the environment all I had to do was see it it, it seems such a radical breakthrough to realize that any way you could arrange the air in the flute through open and closed holes, through big holes or small holes, but every possible arrangement, and there are quite a few permutations with all these different keys, that none of those arrangements would produce less than three notes. And that you could combine the notes, the lowest in the middle, the middle and the highest. Sometimes you could play all three, sometimes you could play the lowest and the highest. Oftentimes you would get four or six notes from an arrangement of air. That was just waiting to be discovered. That of course later on led to changes in the construction of the flute itself, because this traditional design is a work of genius for 19th century music. So the first preconception was the flute plays only one note at a time. The second preconception was that the tone color is relatively limited to things that sound like what people think flutes sound like. But what about or or there are so many more sonic possibilities that the flute is capable only of you know a little bit of pitch fluctuation and um, and once you identify the preconceptions, then you're well on your way to, to freeing yourself from them. You know, what I'm constantly saying to uh, students, particularly college age, university students, in every discipline, is that examination of, of assumptions is really critical. Asking yourself, what what am I just taking for granted? Because people told me so. Have I actually looked at it for myself? And have I made a judgment for myself that, yeah, okay, I accept that. Or no, I mean, why should we accept that? It just doesn't make sense. And I can see past it. It's identifying the most basic of assumptions that lead to the widest degree of, of freedom. And so as a teacher, I mean, there, I guess, so there were things that you were taught 
and I know that now as a teacher, you, you introduce that into what you tell your students, but I know it's not wasted time, but do you feel like you know, there's always this kind of a little bit of a battle between creativity and spontaneity? And I guess in music education begins so early. It's, it's very hard for a young child to be questioning what they're taught. I mean, if you're starting at five. Well, yes, well, it all depends uh, on the child and the parents to begin with. My, my kids never had the slightest difficulty questioning their parents from, from the beginning. But on the other hand, their questions were not suppressed, but we tried to answer them. But I was referring more to, you know, someone in their teens or their 20s you're very much your own person at that age. And there are many artistic disciplines, if we just talk about the arts for the moment, where there's huge traditions. And there are sometimes people who posit that until you've learned everything in the tradition, you dare not make an original step of your own. Well, that's just silly because you can be learning the tradition, and frankly, if, if it really matters to you, you should. But again, you can't be enslaved to it. You need to use that knowledge that you're learning. And, and, and if you see original things to do, you should be doing them as well. You know, these processes can all run at the same time. I mean, if you wait until you know everything from the past, you'll be dead. And also in terms of, as I listen to your own music, other traditions and other cultures, I mean, the, the, there is not one tradition, there are several traditions. And what have you learned from other cultures? How are you inspired by them? And I also know that you've played and taught uh, and lived around the world. Yes. Well, first of all, you know, people are people, music is music. And if you're a flutist, for example, and again, what I'm telling my students is like, you are a member of a worldwide family of flutists. And we should be all learning from each other to say that, you know, just because you happen to be playing, say, in the flute in France, to say that you have nothing to learn from a flutist in Africa or China or India is, is absurd. And hopefully the flutists in Africa or India and China will have, you know, their ears open too and can learn things from us. Yes, I mean, I, I've been very influenced, particularly by North Indian classical flutists. But everywhere, you know, if you spin the globe and you put your finger down randomly, as long as you're on a landmass of some sort, there'll be somebody playing a flute of some kind there. And it's going to be interesting and worth hearing. hearing is a, a piece called Sliding Life Blues. That's very influenced not by other flute players from around the world, but from the blues guitar tradition. Most notably, as played by Jimi Hendrix, who is, is the musician who influenced me more than any other, because of his total sense of, of freedom that whatever he could imagine, he would find a way to play. And I'm using something, you know, I have changed the flute quite a number of ways, but most significantly with this peculiar looking, the mouthpiece on the flute is called the head joint. In German, it's the Kopfstück, and in French, it's la tête. Uh, so in English, the head joint. It's this is called the glissando head joint because it telescopes and it does for the flute what the whammy bar does for the electric guitar. You 
can use it for many, 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 many more things than playing the blues. But that's, it's very good for the blues. I can really hear that. It really yeah, but it, it does. It is very good for the blues. And one of the quests is when you're playing mu music, what you're looking for is to have communication between people as directly as possible. And that ideally, the medium, whether it be a piano, a flute, a jaw harp, a zither, you name it, that the medium itself disappears. It's just, you know, direct communication between people. And certainly, one of the things I've striven for is to enable the flute to be as much like a voice as possible. And again, not all the time. Sometimes you want it to be more drum-like. And so the glissando head joint was a, a, a huge step. It was waiting for somebody to see it. And I'm, I'm thrilled and also very humbled that I was the person who saw it. Because it is so fundamental and so simple, it's what enables the most possible things to, to happen from with it. For example, this is a sound that's completely new in flute tone. No flute from any culture and any time has ever been able to do something like this before, which is to take multiple notes at the same time and make them slide. Let's see. That is completely new. And uh, of course, someone playing pedal steel guitar would go, uh, doesn't sound so new to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, but for the flute to be able to do that is completely new. And so then of course, making a tool is one thing, but then using it is another. I was wondering if uh, there were any particular, you know, you were, were you in the process of composing a piece of music that you found, I, I need to do this, and what that was that you had to create it? I had been working on developing glissandi for the flute. You know, the Western classical flute tradition is the only flute tradition on earth that has no slides in it. Many flutes have what, what are called these open holes, which are, there are five keys, that have these perforations. But you can do certain things by kind of sliding off of them. But it, it really, it can do some wonderful things, but there are a lot of limits to where you can, what you can do and where you can go. So I, I was living in a state of frustration, wishing to go beyond that while working to do it as best I could. But the birth of the glissando head joint was a friend of mine lent me a different head joint. There was a guy in the 1970s who tried to reimagine the acoustics of the head joint. And it was based not on the, the flute head joint, it's hard to see, but it is a section of a cone. This is bigger than that. And into the section of the cone, there's this little parabola bellied into it. And this other fellow named Fajardo, F-A-J-A-R-D-O, Raul Fajardo, tried to reimagine it based on a cylinder. Now, most of those had been made as wooden head joints, but someone had made a metal one. And my friend Alexander Murray, who also has done a lot of work in redesigning the flute mechanism, not so much to expand what the musical possibilities are, but to improve how traditional ones are made. Anyway, so Alex lent me this metal cylindrical head joint. And I was sitting, looking at it, um, it's, you know, it's on a table in front of me and I'm looking at it, but I'm not seeing it. So I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna look at it until I see it. <laughs> and, and so I sat there and I stared at it and I stared at it and I stared at it and finally went, oh, I see it. And so what I did was, now imagine that this is a cylinder and so I took it out of the flute and I put it in the other way. And because it was a cylinder, it fit. And then I stuffed something into the end. And of course, everything was 
totally different. It wasn't in and of itself, it wasn't that interesting, but I instantly saw, but on the other hand, because with it there, the place that you blow was much closer to the body of the flute. So I thought, if while you play, you could get from there to there as you played, now that would be really something. So the original concept was that the lip plate was going to slide along on a channel. Now, of course, once you actually try to build that, you realize that it, it, it doesn't make sense. And the more, the more you get into it, the more the reasons not to do it pile up because it's just not going to be successful. So then the idea came to take the entire, you know, on this, there is that same mouthpiece that you saw, but it's inside of a carrier tube and the whole thing is sliding, which preserves the acoustics of the flute, all, all those good things. Then originally it was supposed to go into the flute and this way. Well, the very first moment I tried that, I realized, oh, that's a mistake. Because, I mean, these things tell you right away. So it's clearly, okay, it's got to go out. There was even a prototype that went both directions. Well, that was maddening. And so then the process, you know, I had a lot of help. And it's also so important to realize that almost, no one can really do it all alone. Three different flute makers helped me develop the glissando head joint. Eva Kingma in Holland, Kaspar Bechi in Switzerland, and ultimately one of the greatest of all flute makers, Bickford Brannan in Boston, who actually perfected this incredibly elegant design. And so with their help, this dream got, got realized. I'm not someone who can go into a machine shop and work metal and I don't have those skills and I have all of those fingertips. They're all there. And in a machine shop, it's really easy to lose parts of yourself. <laughs> well, so well, mistakes happen very quickly. And, and I learned from watching these folks that there are different forms of concentration and that my form of concentration, which is to hear the unheard music is not an effective form of concentration to work with molten metal and high-powered dangerous tools where you need to be in the here and now 100 percent you can't be in the future somewhere because bad things will happen in the present if you are so i collaborate and i really believe in this idea that people working together can achieve these kinds of things. It isn't necessary for it all to be done by, by one person. And in fact, it's far better if multiple people with, you know, you're bringing a wider, a much bigger array of talent and experience. And I'd like to ask you, because you just mentioned there about you know what your talents are and it's not, you know, working with metal, you need some machinists, but you sp spoke about that headspace, that dreaming headspace. I'd like to, for you to talk about your your improvisation process, the, the hearing process, I think that, mm. and I was so fascinated also to read that something you said in, that in terms of your learning process is that you were, you were taught, a lot of music is we're taught to, see, which I, I thought it was about hearing, but like an inner hearing process. I want to understand that better. Well, let's see, you're a writer. You need to hear the untold story. You need to find your way to listen to it so that you can write it. And of course, writers, I'm, I'm sure, have as many different ways of doing that as there are writers. When you invited me for this series and I saw that you had interviewed Robert Olin Butler, one of my favorite writers. I was like thrilled to be in the same series as, as, as him. So as a composer, an improviser, you need to find your way to hear the unheard music. And again, there are as many ways to do that as there are people. And in fact, for every piece, I do it differently because the starting point is different. Sometimes it's just you're literally walking into the dark with your eyes closed, knowing that 
if you're looking, you will start to see something and or you'll start to hear something. Other times I have an idea, like I know what I want to do in this piece. I just have to now find the way to do it. And particularly if I'm using aspects of forms that already exist. I was very inspired by the Indonesian gamelan. You know, there was already a lot of material that needed to be used, for example, to find a way to make the flute sound like an Indonesian flute, then to find a way, like as in the gamelan, where the low instruments place low melodies and the higher instruments play these faster um, counter melodies. So, And of course, from the moment of inspiration to full realization, it's a lot of homework to do, you know, and having the, the patience and the impatience at the same time, you know, the patience to know I'm going to work at this until it is really where it needs to be. And I have no patience for anything that, that but my best the whole way. You need both of those engines if you want to launch your spaceship. One is fueled with patience and one is fueled with impatience. I lo just, I love those sounds. And I wonder, you know, as a painter, I, I'm always thinking, I'm always trying to visualize. I wonder, are you also getting inspiration from nature or, or movement? Like what are those sounds? What are, are this? Is it symbols? What are the feelings that are going into that? People ask me where the music comes from, and the only answer is two words, life itself. And yes, sometimes I am thinking of things I've seen in nature. I have used paintings as graphic scores, Kandinsky in particular. And in fact, I once actually got to play a concert playing the paintings of Kandinsky at the Kunsthaus in Zug, Switzerland, with the original Kandinsky's. Instead of projecting reproductions, there they were, the original paintings. And, and Kandinsky himself was very much influenced in, in music, and, and he wrote quite a bit about that. There's no reason to feel that that which you can see is separate from that which you can hear, and that which you can move, and uh, that would be accepting preconceived limits. And, and I've never... I've never seen the benefit of, of accepting those limits. I mean, what for? You know, the limits are the limits of one's imagination, which is, I think, ultimately limitless. My name is Alyssa Fitzgerald-Price. I'm a junior at Occidental College in Los Angeles, and I'm studying marine biology with a minor in studio art. I'm an environmental education and ethics podcaster for the creative process. The only limits are the limits of your imagination is something I strive to live by in my art. I'm constantly racking my brain for new ideas, and once I have something in mind, I think about how I could alter it in a way that creates an even deeper meaning. One example of this is in my photography class. I was working on a project centered on the subject of family. I used a quilt medium to signify the traditional barn quilts found in Kentucky that tie you to your family. I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky, and born in Huntington, West Virginia. And in this photography class, I merged two of my favorite art forms, textiles and photography, into one by transfer paper and light exposures, um, giving a deeper meaning to both subjects and my understanding of family along the way. In a broader sense, I think there is really no limit to what one can study and learn from others. Robert Dick shows us this theme by pushing his flute to function past what everyone else thought was possible with the glissando head joint. In my case, I love using what I've learned in my science classes and translating them into art. 
Knowing how to balance the two is very difficult because traditionally people see science as analytical and art as abstract, so they never seem to cross over. But in my eyes, they're both just ways in which we try to understand our environment and the world around us. Breaking the limits of what these subjects are traditionally known for is motivating and really fun to do. Stepping outside of the bounds, as Robert Dick says, walking in the dark and looking for something, knowing you cannot see and have patience in the fact that you will find what you're looking for is a great way to start. If we do not accept the traditional limits, then the limitations are meaningless. And I think this idea is important not only to be breaching limitations, but not doing it alone. Working with a nonprofit at my school, teaching science lessons to empower young women, has shown me that a tight-knit group of motivated individuals is the best support system you could ask for. It's not necessary to try and stumble when other people may have more experience in the darkness or have light to assist you along the way. Opening up to one another and embracing differences, just as you embrace the differences of the subjects like art and science, is in my opinion the only way to move forward, not only in artistic endeavors, but in life. wondering you know uh, because I think I mean we have this overload of senses in this contemporary world and of course you live in New York City you also have lived in other cities I also wonder how those places influenced you but I wonder that from a composer's performer's point of view does that the, the contemporary influences of life do you find um, sometimes it is um, dulls the senses do you know i wonder because i feel like we're so inundated now well yes we all each and every one of us we are the captain of our little ship and if there are times when we feel that the waters we're in are we need to get away from well then we have to try to find our way to do that now whether it be physically by just going to a place of more repose Maybe that's not possible. Maybe you just have to go there in your mind. I'm not a meditator in the traditional sense, but I have spent countless hours meditating. And in all of those times, just, you know, if I'm trying to do something like ultra simple, you know, make the most beautiful note I can. Well, you know, as I do that, there's nothing going on in my mind but that note. And again, that takes practice. I have studied, you know, the works of Stanislavski, who was the great uh, theater director. His book, An Actor Prepares, is, is the or book on performance of any kind. I pay a lot of attention to what people talk about in sports. The signal difference is, as an artist, I play with people, I don't play against them. But there are other many things that are in common, the need for concentration, the need to respond right now, you know? <laughs> the need for an uncluttered mind being like really focused on what you're doing. There are ways to make your own space and your own peace. And this is not to say that there's the occasional day where you can really, really, really identify with the scream figure, you know. And there was this hilarious and, and profound cartoon in the New Yorker, oh, I don't know, quite maybe 30 years ago. It was called Mish in New York. And it's the scream figure. He's sitting quietly at a restaurant table in the first panel. The next panel, there's a waiter there going like, Hi, I'm Daniel, I'll be your server. Then in the third panel, you know, he's quietly munching away on his dinner. And in the fourth panel, you see this gigantic pepper shaker entering. He goes, Fresh pepper, sir? 
<laughs> and yes, I mean, I've had that experience in New York, but I think, would you just leave me alone? And, and, you know, this is part of life too. I would say that the urban influence in my music is the fact that I'm at peace with a lot of things going on at the same time. So, you know, a, a friend of mine who plays, you know, he's one of the world's greatest, you know, Baroque flutists. He lives in a tiny village in Belgium where his family has lived for over 400 years. And when he wakes up in the morning, he hears many of the same things that his great, 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 great grandfather heard. You know, he hears, he hears chickens and cows and uh, goats and the quiet of nature. So the first time he heard my music, he kind of freaked out because he couldn't handle it. It was just, there was just too much happening and he was unable to process it. What he was bringing was all of his preconceptions about what flute music were like. And I wasn't concerned with any of them. So what he was doing was he was hearing what the music was not, which is a very unsatisfying experience and not what the music was. So some years later, he heard me play again. And because he had heard it once before, he had some idea of what was coming. And so he was able to hear what the music was and, you know, could really understand and, and be touched by it. And so as we all are, to some degree, profoundly really shaped by the environments I've lived in. And I've lived in cities almost all of my life. The times away from cities have been brief and some summer summers in the country, essentially, and that's about it. I do hope at some point I will be able to live in the country. I've always dreamed of waking up in the morning and just walking out the door and I'm being right there in the country. No travel to it, just being right there. Getting to know the birds who live right around me and getting to know the trees on a personal level where we see each other every day and the water, all of that. I would, I would love that. And it's a dream and I, I, I hope to make that dream come true. Oh, it's interesting that I, me too, I've lived always in cities, but a part of that was in Ireland, which the cities sort of feel rural, not, they're not as big, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know why, but you're drawn to people, I guess, as well. I love about cities. So are you sure you can, you can be alone in the country or you will always have to come back? I'll find out. <laughs> so I don't need to be sure. I just need to be open. I'll find out. And I mean, it's not like I'd want to go to the country and never come back. But as a basic environment, I've gotten an awful lot out of all my decades in cities. And I would love to have, you know, nature have a much more sustained say. But for example, one of the things that my, my, my friend Bart Kalkin, really, if you listen to Baroque flute, he's a guy you want to hear. So I was playing the bass flute and I was using the bass flute not as the sound source, you know, like this. But I was using it to distribute the sound and the sound was coming from me talking and singing. <laughs> that overloaded him. And um, <laughs> in a way, where would some ideas like that come from? Well, the kind of free association that you would get from James Joyce, from Japanese ghost stories and certainly I, I've been a devoted science fiction reader my whole life and everyone who thinks that science fiction is about rockets and robots is wrong. All right well and, and I'm assuming you're no relation to Philip K. Dick. 
Um, tragically not. I wish I was. Oh, it would have been so cool. You know. <laughs> He's one of the greats, certainly. Um, no, I just. He, cer I he certainly is, and I've literally read just about everything he's ever written yes and, and and he's certainly an influence on on my creative work one of the great phrases from philip k dick was living information in one of his best novels uh, ubik this phrase came up in uh, some passage living information and i thought the sound itself that people make I've never heard a better description. It's living information because inside that sound is everything. You can, you know, what is happening inside the person? What are they feeling? How are they doing it? Um, it's all there if you know how to hear it. I really do wish that I was, you know, weird nephew, weird nephew Robert with weird Uncle Phil. That would have been great. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, have you done any music in dialogue with him? I know you have with paintings. So have you thought to do a... Well, I have sometimes played while people read poetry. And you know, that's okay up to a point. But it always seems out of balance to me because someone's reading something that's fixed and I'm improvising. Wouldn't it be great if they were improvising too? It's much less interesting to me if they're reading a poem and I'm playing, say, a Debussy piece or something. So some of the next things I'm going to do are going to be spoken word pieces where I'm actually doing this kind of playing and everything else. And I'm thinking of using some of the, the real classics, you know, Hamlet's soliloquy. You know, why not? I wonder how that would sound. I don't know. Then you're also, and I don't want to neglect speaking about it, you also have a kind of spoken word film project as well. Yes. It's a performance piece that I've been doing in collaboration with the actor and performance artist, Rindy Eckert, who's been a dear friend since we were in school together, and the theater director, Mark Ikeaza. Uh, and... It's it's called Robert Seriously Amused, and in it, I'm improvising some music, I'm playing pieces, I'm also, you know, making music without uh, things that aren't flutes, just little sonic objects and stuff, and telling some stories from my life, and some, there was, also I told a dream that I had, for example, I'm telling the story of when I shot the conductor of the All City High School Orchestra with a cigar out of my flute when I was about 16. I'm glad I, I'm glad at it, the end of that sentence. Yes, <laughs> does it? Yes, well, does it look like a blowgun? It did to me. And it started with, you know, one day I forgot that the cleaning rod and the cleaning cloth were still in the flute. So of course it started to play and nothing came out. And instead of taking the flute apart and removing it, I don't know why, I just blew it out. And it flew a few feet and went, oh, look at that. And I got so I could blow the cleaning rod six or seven feet. And then I realized, well, but you know, the projectile's gotta be better if it's gonna go further. And I found a cigar, cost 25 cents back in 1965 or six that fit my flute like it had been manufactured for that purpose. And it would fly a good 30 feet straight if you really blew hard behind it. Now, it was never lit. I was not shooting cigars of death at anybody. And the conductor of our orchestra had these wax mustachios. And he had this habit of conducting with his mouth open. Oh, did you get it? <laughs> and I tried to pop it into his mouth was the goal. And I knew I was going to have one shot and one shot only. And so we were playing some Dvorak symphony and it was like 73 measures rest. So I really had time to take careful aim. And just as I let it fly, he turned and it hit his mustache as it went by. And he didn't know what had happened. 
and the orchestra fell apart laughing and you know he said come on everyone back back to letter uh, p and at the break he asked one of these assistants why did they all start laughing he said well a young robert there in the flute section uh, took a pot shot at you with a cigar out of his flute <laughs> and and he was a really great guy and a great person and he thought it was funny i know plenty of other conductors who would not have thought that was funny but it never occurred to me I would get in trouble for that because I know, I think intuitively uh, I understood that this was a guy who had the, the bigness of personality and humanity to realize that it was really a funny idea. Well, you're always breaking a convention and always uh, modifying your flute. Yeah. Well, I never met anyone else who shot things out of the flute. That puzzled me. It, it, it seemed like sort of obvious. But tell us a little bit about your teachers and also your collaborate, you know, the musicians you collaborate with. My teachers are, well, we can think of them in sort of three different groups. One is, of course, the original flute teachers I had, who in their way were very inspiring and good, but all of whom were focused in the classical world and I was never asked to play anything by ear, and my own creativity was never mentioned to me, not even once. Then people I would study composition with, like Robert Morris and Jacob Druckmann and Bulon Turel, well, they lived, they were like painters. They lived in a world where what you do is create. And so that was really eye-opening. And then the improvisers, the creative musicians, who I've known and worked with and continue to do so. Like I have an ongoing collaboration with the singer Thomas Buckner. We just walk out and create the whole concert spontaneously. Our lives have been the rehearsals for that. And then the pianist and composer Wussel Schlicht. I would think that's actually at this moment my longest ongoing collaboration. And we do things a little differently. Um, we do use composition. Some of the compositions actually have notes on paper. Some of them are schematics about what kind of thing happens when. And without specific notes on paper, you know, every piece has its own compositional approach, but every piece uses improvisation extensively in, in very different ways. And it's really something I love doing. I've been playing a lot with a young German electric guitar player, Nicola Hein, also a young, younger drummer, uh, Tiffany Weichin. We made a CD before she decided she wanted to be called Weichin, and so it was Tiffany Chang. She felt there were too many Tiffany Changs. And, and so I, I played with very, very, very many people over the years, and sometimes in ensembles that last and develop and tour. And there was a group when I lived in Switzerland, the ADD trio, named not after the emotional problem, but are simply our initials. It was Steve Arguelles, the drummer, Christy Doron, the guitarist, and Robert Dick, the flutist. When I named the group ADD, I didn't know about ADD. And so the first time I called someone said, you know, I'm calling about the ADD trio and this person burst into laughter and I have no idea why. So, um, it's a great name and, and more so for you not knowing. Yes. <laughs> so just uh, yeah. And so I'm basically, I think like any other creative person, striving to create in, in the ways that speak to me. It's basically, I'm asking creativity to tell me what needs to be created, and then I'll try to create it. It's not about me. I think and, it's very interesting that you, when you get out of your own way, I guess. And I guess I've been silent throughout, and I'm very interested in spontaneity in terms of I feel in my own practice, but I would, I would fear I have no background really in music. So I would, I would be fearful in music because I... I, I wonder about like wrong notes or something. But I guess when you know, well, for me, I do it in writing. So I feel like you can't go wrong when writing because I think that we all don't 
formulate ourselves perfectly in our mind. And so with writing, I felt like you could break the rules, but I even admire it more so the improvisation and music where, you know, harmonization and all these things. And I don't well, know, able to listen to someone else's thoughts in the moment. Well, you know, you can always turn the pencil over and erase something, right? Um, yeah, exactly. You can't take away the notes. You can always... Well, but you can. It depends in which way. I mean, for example, when I'm composing in the traditional sense, I'm actually writing a piece out. I work very slowly and I write and I rewrite and I rewrite and I keep doing that until it's done. And, and some pieces have taken years to complete because I'm sort of like one of those painters who will show up in the museum and keep working on the painting. You know, and also I, I've often, like, sometimes I've written a passage, you know, painstakingly notated it. I mean, it's very labor-intensive to write this stuff down. It really is. You know, and my, my um, admiration for somebody like Tchaikovsky writing these whole symphonies with a quill pen, it's incredible. And so I'll write this passage, I'll work it and rework it and rework it until like, okay, that's it. And then a couple of days later, um, no, not quite. So I'll start to change it and I'll rework it and rework it till it gets to something else. Go like, ah, okay, there it is. Cool. And then a little while later, start going, mm, um, not so sure about that. So start changing it, re rework it, rework it. And it comes back to what it was in the first place. But this time I believe it. So it, it, the compositional process allows you unlimited time for anything you want. I mean, one second of music you might want, you might wind up working on for hours and hours. It helps you refine, you know, your ability to, you know, your choices. The improvisational process where you are going end to end nonstop helps you refine your command of larger structure. So I'm a better composer because I'm an improviser and I'm a better improviser because I'm a composer. Both of those things help each other. That's so interesting. I'd never heard it phrased that way, but I believe it's true that the act of improvisation, you have this natural form that takes, because you have to do it in the moment, you have to finish it and you just find this I don't know, it's just an illumination that comes to you and it has this natural shape, I find, not knowing about music, but in other forms that when you have this time limit and you really are more or less improvised, maybe making some final changes at the end, I don't know, I get smarter. I don't know, it's, you have a, you know, a gun pointed at your head and you have to do it, then even an audience is watching, so I can even imagine with an audience yes. watching. Well you know, okay, it's now, it's real, we're going. As you improve at what you're doing, I mean, a beginning improviser often can only go a relatively short distance before starting to lose focus. And with experience, you can see further and command larger and larger forms and lengths of time. And you can have a more developed or more complex architecture or an extremely simple one, but really follow through on it. And, and that, that has to do with many different skills and experiences, including, of course, the understanding that the one thing not to think about is yourself. I, I, I can't say that I've ever like made an entire CD or done an entire session without an instant of thinking about myself, but I think of myself very, very, very little. And the less, the better, because it's more, um, it's about the music. It's not about me. I'm there to hear it and then to find a way for other people to hear it too. You know, because really, you know, creating or performing music can be thought of as hearing it so well that other people can also hear it. And writing, what would be any different? Hearing the story so clearly that other people can, you know, can, can read it too. And it just 
constantly puts you more and more in awe of some of the great masters who managed to do so much in their life. I mean, all those plays by Shakespeare, my gosh. Uh, you know. Yeah, uh, I think that that must also speak to, there must be some collaborative process in that as well, just because yeah. it had to be, you know, at least writing on writing for certain uh, yes. actors in the repertoire, at least. I was wondering if you noticed a difference in the the quality or the the sound of your music when it's improvised i mean is there is it more more quiet when you're composing on your own i mean what are those different parts of your personality almost there's no difference the kinds of music i would improvise are dependent entirely on what i'm feeling and thinking and being and the kinds of music I would compose are exactly the same. I, I like to think that every one of my pieces, we're talking now about the, the written ones, is really different and unique from all the others, but there's something unspoken, unsaid, that all identifies them as it's created by me. But I'm, I'm not the kind of person who, like certain minimalist artists I used to know, they would say, like, find your shape and stick to it. And so they were just basically doing iterations of the same idea or composers who basically write the same sort of thing. And that's what they do. If you like one Steve Reich piece, you'll probably like them all. And if you don't, you probably won't like them all. But there's going to be a, a huge similarity from one to the next. And that's not me. My output is much lower than that because, you know, I'm starting from scratch every time. Is there an element of biography in your music and how have you, how do you feel it has, you know, if we go from different, you know, Ourselves Know or Photosphere or the Book of Shadows, I mean, I don't know, I'm always looking for the story, the, the verbal story as well for us to understand. Well, Sometimes there's a verbal story, sometimes not. I think titles are very important because they give the listener a kind of window, but very often the titles come after the music is made. Our Cells Know is the title of a CD, and one of the pieces is also called Our Cells Know, but it was titled after the music was created. The music told me the title. And other times I will have a title uh, sometimes for years before I, I get it, that's, that's the piece. And sometimes, you know, you find titles, they're just there in the environment. You know, last night I was joking with some friends, I have to say, yesterday's word in German was, you know, schadenfreude, because it, I had to laugh when Trump got uh, COVID-19. I had COVID-19, I know how serious that is. I've never been sicker in my life. And we were kind of joking about it. And the phrase viral load came up. And I said, that's the name of my band. Because really, I mean, that, that's a name in search of a band, right? Viral load. That <laughs> <So>, is <laughs> um, a great name. <laughs> so autobiographical, maybe only in the sense of the experiences I've had, the emotions I've felt in my life, those are the things that are going to be in my music. I, I can't be anybody else and don't want to be. So I will perhaps do certain things that, like, yeah, okay, Robert would do that. Someone I studied composition with years and years later heard a CD I made and heard this passage. And he goes, you know, only you would do that. You're combining humor and terror. <laughs> so, so you're the only person who would do that. But no, I'm not like trying to. And little Robert started to play the flute, toot toot, and then he grew up. <laughs> so, um, uh, no, I, I didn't mean. I know that is a silly question, and I know that. Um, 
I guess novelists get annoyed when that's asked, but I would say that that's a more evident question for novelists <laughs> because it is a verbal storytelling. But no, I, yeah, it's just there's emotional phases of one's life, or maybe yeah. one thinks of one's the, one's rhythms as a young man, as a child, or if one is going back to that, or you know. Yes. Well, sure. I do think about how I observe the world as a very small boy, where life batters you this way and that way and distracts you or sometimes injures you and and you need to heal yourself and center yourself you know i find going back as far as i can i i can still remember some things like from before i could walk and i remember just being a child and my parents had a a full-length mirror and there I was crawling along and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm trying, I can, I can see there's a whole world in there. And I'm trying to get into the mirror, you know, <laughs> and, and see as far into there as you, you can. And those kind of experiences where, you know, children live in a much more magical world because they don't know the cause and effect of many things. Things just happen. And so there's a lot of magic in their world. And so you want to re-enter the world of magic in the books that Carlos Castaneda wrote about his apprenticeship and sorcery are quite instrumental in helping a grown-up re-enter the world of magic. I think that it's, uh, I think that that's so wonderful and how you've accessed the freedom and magic and imagination through the spontaneities of your improvisations and sharing that with students. It's really, you know, there's so many of us here that are afraid even to do things that are not spontaneous, even to just, just pursue a life of composing. As you know, so many musicians are afraid to make that step. Yeah. So I think that your life has been really one of great courage and invention. I mean, saying, this, I'm not going to accept this flute as it is. I, I could do something with it. And I think as we look back, even your earliest memory of looking through the mirror and thinking, is there a way in there? Can I get to the other side? Yeah. <laughs> it's really, I think it's all a part of your unique perspective. I do want to ask, you know, this is an education initiative, as you know, and beyond the arts, the importance of the arts, we believe in it strongly. But, you know, we're also thinking about some of these other systems we have as we think about the future and the kind of world we're living yeah. the next generation from the, the environment, our educational models, even our political systems. So I don't know if there are some things that you would like to change or how we might improve upon them in order to have a better tomorrow. Well, I think by far the most urgent challenge we face right now is climate change. There are many other problems in the world to solve, but if we're extinct, they become moot. If we poison and kill our planet, well, inequality, which is a horrible thing, well, we'll solve that because we'll all be equally dead. So that's not the solution we're going to, we should be seeking. And I think that more than anything else, and, and the, the underlying motivation for all the terrible things that have happened is greed. And trying to find our way as humans, as humanity, to transcend greed. This is not easy. I mean, it's kind of hardwired into our survival, our Darwinian survivalness. But until we truly are willing to share, our situation is essentially hopeless. You know, maybe a thousand years ago, they, they might have some excuse for not seeing this coming. But we're here, we're now, and it's right in front of us. And it's happening everywhere all the time. You know, the environment is a heat engine and the more heat you put into it, the faster it goes. And we're putting more and more and more heat into it and suffering the consequences and sea level is rising, and weather is changing and everything is becoming more and more violent because it has more energy. And as long as people feel like well, I've got the money, 
I can protect my family, the hell with them. Well, it's, it's not going to work. Our only hope is to hope and act t together. Well, I hope that, I mean, uh, you've given us a great example, and I hope that we're really thinking about that too. I mean, I certainly speak to a lot of young people who are so concerned, and we, we have a project we're doing now for the UN Conference for Climate Change. And, and I think that, you know, all artists, but particularly musicians, the way you collaborate, the way you support each other and work together, I think that that's also a great model if we could learn from that, that yes. each depending and listening to each other, you want everyone to do well. I think that's, I would love to learn more from that in those collaborative forms. So thank you, Robert Dick, for inviting us into your creative world and sharing your insights into composition, improvisation, telling stories through music, and uh, being a, a general wonderful example about the courage it, it takes uh, and not accepting the limitations of what is the received knowledge and tradition. Thank you for adding your voice to Well, thank you so much. It's been my privilege and joy. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Alyssa Fitzer-Price. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Adelis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>